<laughs> hey, welcome, welcome to, to Beyond, Beyond the, the Test, Test Tube, a science, science podcast. podcast. Hi, Madeline. How are you today? Oh, I'm good. How are you, Elaine? I'm fine. I was really impressed with Alison uh, McLean when we uh, interviewed her. She was, she was absolutely fantastic. What did you think? Oh, me too. I really learned a lot about her, her research and um, things in yeah. general. <laughs> <laughs> it's difficult to straddle the uh, line between two systems, right? So like she's a plant biologist and at the same time, she's also a microbiologist. And to study both systems and to try to understand how they work together, you know, how they communicate and how they influence each other through, you know, symbiotic relationship is absolutely fascinating. So I hope that everyone who's listening to the podcast is also going to be enthralled by her research. And also she's such a fantastic communicator. She's yeah. very, absolutely amazing. Yeah. She did a really good job explaining everything, um, especially I'm not someone who's microbiology or plant um, versed, so <laughs> she did a really good job explaining it. So I hope everyone else out there who may not be in that field uh, understood it as well and really learned something new. Right. So uh, without further ado, then uh, let's listen to what Alison had to say. All right. Enjoy. Welcome, Alison McLean. Thank you very much for participating uh, in this interview with us. Um, I'm with Madeline Empey. We're going to talk to you, Alison, today because you're a absolutely fantastic and really interesting researcher. And I really wanted to speak to you for a long time about your research and about how you actually got into science. I know you graduated from McMaster University, so you did your bachelor's degree there. And you also did your PhD in, uh, it, was it in the same laboratory that you did your honors project? Yeah, PhD? Yeah. yeah, it was. It was not necessarily, <laughs> you know, what you're supposed to do. I think you're supposed to go out and get a, a broader range of experience, but I was never planning on doing a PhD. I just started an honors thesis project because it was a requirement of my program. I was in the molecular biology program and I just found that I really loved being in the lab. And that's true even to this day. It is my favorite place to be by far is just hanging out in the lab. And, and I found even though I was a really excellent student that I'd started to cut some classes just so I could be in the lab and do some of the experiments. And this was in my fourth year. And so not really knowing what else I wanted to do with my life, I thought, okay, well, let's just stay and do a master's. And it made sense to stay in the same lab um, for a variety of reasons, but mostly because I just loved what I was doing at that time. And then about a year in, I realized I still didn't know what I wanted to do and I was still really loving my time in the lab. So I transferred up to a PhD um, and it kind of just you know snowballed from there. Uh, so that's why I ended up doing a PhD in the same place where I started my honors thesis project all those years ago. I just really loved it. And then after your PhD, then you really got a fantastic opportunity with the Marie Curie Fellowship to move to, Brit to Britain uh, in order to study at the John Innes Center, which is like a mecca for yeah. <laughs> oh, cool. anything that's plant biology, right? Yeah. And you did your uh, first postdoctoral uh, position uh, with somebody called Saskia 
Hogenhout. <laughs> I'm not sure how to pronounce that. Saskia Hogenhout, yeah. Yes. Yeah, that was an amazing opportunity, but I very much went into it as a microbiologist, not a plant biologist. My training was very much in microbiology and my PhD was in a microbiology lab. I was studying a plant beneficial symbiont, but my project had nothing to do with plants, hardly whatsoever. Um, but I loved microbiology and it was a great opportunity to join a lab to learn about uh, what I thought was a really fascinating bacterial pathogen of plants. Um, I love this, this species partly because I'd never heard of it. Actually, when I was looking around for a postdoc, I, I read about this thing called phytoplasma, which I had never heard about. And I thought, what on earth is this? It was fairly obscure at the time, less so now. But what's amazing about this, this species of bacteria is that it alters the way plants develop and grow. And I just found that really amazing that this very simplistic, one of the more simplistic bacteria, it's related to mycoplasma, um, could just have such a dramatic effect on the development of a more complex host such as plants. And, and so I took advantage of that opportunity to join the lab of Saskia Hogenhout and soon after got a Marie Curie International Fellowship, which was a phenomenal opportunity. And my project focused on an effector protein that the bacteria makes. So effector proteins are proteins that are released by microbes um, into a host, and they basically act in a way that makes it easier for the bacteria to colonize the host. And the particular protein I studied, we knew would alter the development of flowers and plants. And so for a long time, people had noticed that plants infected with phytoplasma produce green leaves. It's a very obvious striking symptom of infection, but nobody really understood why, what was the basis of this. And so my research project led to the discovery of this, this little protein, a very small 10 kilodalton protein called SAP54 that is produced by the bacteria when they infect plants, it's released into the plant, and it basically taps into two conserved pathways within a plant, but more or less it degrades or breaks down transcription factors that are really key for normal floral development in plants. So it breaks down plant proteins that normally are essential for growing flowers. And flowers are quite simply modified versions of leaves. And so when you remove these transcription factors, flowers revert back to leaves and you end up getting green leaf-like flowers. And so I was at the John Innes Center for four years um, and my project basically figured out the, the pathway that was involved by which this protein did that. Um, the John Innes Center is a phenomenal research institute, is ranked as the number one plant and animal research institute in the entire world. And for plants, it is the place to go if, if that's what your, your field of study is gonna be. And like I said, I walked in as a microbiologist. I knew it was big, but I didn't fully grasp the amazing science and the superstar scientists that were there until several months afterwards when I realized, oh wow, <laughs> this, is, this is pretty intense, you know? And to, to step into a research project that was focused on floral development when I had never really thought much about flowers beyond, oh, these are very pretty and they smell nice. Um, it was quite a steep learning curve, but I think I needed that at that Isn't point. It like a really competitive environment. Oh gosh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I you know, I wouldn't say cutthroat because it's very collegial at the same time and there's a lot of support and help, but you have to 
you know, you, you have to perform at a certain level. You, you kind of don't go there and goof off. Um, it's intense. It's absolutely intense science, but the support is unbelievable, you know. So the mentoring that you get from uh, being close to all these fabulous people, um, I mean, did that influence how you do science? And I mean, how uh, for uh, scientific development, the fact that you're in such a big center, is it a help? or it expands your horizons you know we had friday seminar series where the budget must have been unlimited they would fly in international speakers every week to and these were very much people at the forefront not just of plant science but at science in general i heard about crispr a couple years i would say before it actually kind of became big because they invited somebody you know one of the main people who discovered this pathway to come and give a talk about it it was it was just you know and the, yeah, it just very much expands your horizons. You can learn about cutting edge research in a way that's very difficult to do so unless you're at a conference. And this was on a regular basis. Um, the tech support also, you know, that's easy to, to take for granted when you're in that environment, but we didn't have to make our own media. We didn't have to make buffers or anything. You would write down a recipe, hand it to somebody and they would make it and autoclave it for you. You know, you wouldn't have to grow your own plants. You give them seeds and they sow them and take care of them for you. You know, fully staffed in sectory, um, professional photographer who was there 20, you know, his full-time job basically was to take photographs of your plants. And it's the small things like that that really contribute to highest quality research. Your figures are that much better, you know. But eventually you had to leave. <laughs> and then you went to uh, Ithaca in uh, New York and mm -hmm. you joined the Maria Harrison lab yeah. at the Boyce Thompson Institute. Um, yeah. That must have been an interesting uh, contrast or was it like a continuation of something that you were doing or you kind of thought I'm going to do something slightly different because I think your project there was slightly different as well. Oh, it was completely different. Yep. Yeah, and I should say at this point, it was it was different research environment to some extent. Ithaca is very different, small town um, dominated by Cornell University versus Norwich, which is where John Innes Center was. But Boyce Thompson Institute or BTI is again one of the top plant focused research institutes in North America. So again, phenomenal support, amazing place to do research, um, very high quality research is produced there. So it certainly was not a step down, but it was a very different research project. So like I said, at the John Innes Center, I focused on a bacterial pathogen of plants. In this case, I thought, okay, let's do something a little different. You know, I focused on effector proteins and how they affect floral development. And I did a bit of other work as well on effector proteins at the John Innes Center. But what we know less about is the role of effector proteins in a beneficial symbiosis. Um, and this, I had the opportunity to join the lab of Maria Harrison, who is one of the pioneering hands down stars in mycorrhizal research an amazing researcher and this was a, a really great opportunity for me. And she was starting up a project to identify effector proteins that are produced by our buscular mycorrhizal fungi. And so these are beneficial soil microbes that colonize about 72% of land plants and help these plants grow in a variety of ways, partly by providing improved access to nutrients and water, but also by 
making them more resistant to a range of pathogens and pests in ways we don't fully understand. So that's why I went to um, the Boyce Thompson Institute. I also did some RNA sequencing work. This was many years ago, and so this was very much, again, a new and happening thing to look at the expression of, of this fungus um, in a range of developmental mutants that were blocked at different stages of the symbiosis. Can you explain how symbiosis is such a huge concept? Well, it's not just a concept, it, it happens all the time in, in life. And what is it and what's important about it and how difficult it is to actually study these um, symbiotic relationships? That's a lot of questions. I probably won't remember them all, but <laughs> the first thing that strikes me is symbiosis. People use that term in a slightly incorrect sense. If you actually go back to the original definition um, coined in the 1800s, symbiosis just means two unlike organisms living together. People usually use it to mean beneficial associations, but actually that's not strictly the case. And so you can use the term symbiosis to apply to a pathogenic association. So an interaction between a microbe and a plant that results in disease or right. might even kill the plants. That is a form of symbiosis. Um, what were the other questions that you asked? Uh, it's difficult to study symbiosis because you need to be familiar with two organisms. So what I love is I'm in the field of plant microbe interactions. And so I study both the plant side of things and the microbe side of things. I find that fascinating because I guess I get bored very quickly and it's just cool to see two different sides of the same coin. But that also means you need to be up to date on literature on two completely different organisms. And it just demands a little bit more. And in terms of the lab, I tend to study what are called obligate biotrophs. These are things that require organisms that require a living host for survival. So the fungus that I study cannot complete its life cycle without a living plant host. The bacteria that I study that John Innes Center requires both plants and insects for survival. And these are more difficult to study because for exactly that reason, you need to always have a living host um, to maintain your populations. Typically these organisms can't be genetically transformed, right? So a lot of the knowledge we derive from science is by studying the so-called weeds, the E. coli, the pseudomonas, um, bacteria or plants such as Arabidopsis that are very easy to mutate. You, you're interested in gene, what does it do? You mutate it, you see what happens. I can't do that with the microbes I study. I cannot make a mutant, you know? I cannot add a GFP tag to my gene of interest and then see where the protein goes. So you need to kind of develop a different toolkit and you need to always be aware of the limitations when you're designing your experiments. It makes it more challenging, but it also means that there's less known about these organisms and perhaps the research field is a little bit less saturated because these are more difficult to study. I'm very excited about a new research project that has just been funded um, by the Canola Research Council and Western Grains, which is to study a protist pathogen called Plasmodiophora brassicae. And this is something we know very little about. It, it causes club root disease in canola, which is probably the most serious biological threat for Canadian canola. It's relatively new disease. And like I said, it's a protist. And as a pathogen, we know very little about it. How does it live? How does it infect canola? When it infects these roots, what we see is that the roots grow into these massive tumors 
and basically the plants wilt because they can't take up nutrients or water and it can it can um, devastate fields and the roots degrade, senesce into the soil and release spores. And these spores can be viable for many years. They survive freezing and thawing. And so once a field is contaminated with these spores, there's, there's no way of very easily getting rid of them. This is another obligate biotrope. We cannot make mutants with it. It is difficult to study. Um, nonetheless, I'm super excited to start a research project to try to identify effector proteins made by this pathogen and proteins made by the plant, canola, and also the model Arabidopsis thaliana, to figure out what is going on on a molecular level between the host and the pathogen to try to dissect the disease. And this is, this is very exciting for me as well. It's another project. I, I do, I love learning new things though. It's another opportunity. So how, how, cause to me when I see, so I hear you talking about uh, bacteria I hear you talking about uh, fungi and protists. So these are like uh, slightly different organisms. So bacteria are very simple. Protists are really quite rather complicated because they're eukaryotic cells. Mm -hmm. And fungi are as well. And mycorrhiza is particularly, uh, to me anyway, more uh, complex organisms because it's got all these different nuclei in it. And, you know, um, how, so how, do you parcel each different type of organism? So do you study these organisms differently because of their nature? Or is the methods behind studying their symbiotic relationships with these plants similar? Or you have uh, similar tools that you use? Or, or you, do you have to vary according to which organisms that you study? Yeah, they're very different very different experiments, very different approaches. I mean, at the end of the day, molecular biology is molecular biology. If you want to purify a protein, it doesn't really matter where that protein comes from. But in terms of the experiments, um, and I thought about starting the Clubroot project very carefully in my lab, because I already have an ongoing mycorrhizal symbiosis project, right? And I need to, um, I wanted there to be a certain amount of overlap and synergy. And these are both organisms that colonize roots and I quite like that um, but they're completely different in the sense that the mycorrhizal fungus will not colonize canola or arabidopsis it just can't they're one of the very few plants that will not engage in that symbiosis um, whereas the plasmodia forabrassicae will not infect the legumes that I study mycorrhizal symbiosis so there's no possibility of cross-contamination but they are very different organisms they have different hosts um, they have diff different limitations. I'm going to be using completely different approaches. You know, with the club root, I'm going to be transforming Arabidopsis thaliana uh, with different effector candidates and looking at the development, uh, making stable transgenic lines and looking at the development of the roots. With the mycorrhizal symbiosis, I, you know, I'm going to be transforming the root system transiently with my candidate effector proteins in a completely different plant, Metacago truncatula. Um, and looking at fungal colonization. So they're very different approaches in my lab. Mm -hmm. The biggest advantage to Arabidopsis is it's one of the very few plants, the only one I can think of, where you can make stable transformants simply by dipping the flowers into an agrobacterian mixture. It's called a floral dip. This is the, 
for no other, well, not for no other reason, but this is the main reason why Arabidopsis has, has risen to such prominence in the scientific field. It's very easy to make stable transformants and you can do so in a matter of months. I have the ability to transform metacalcal truncatula, but it will take me a year and it will take me a lot more work and it will yield many fewer transformants. Right. You cannot wow. dip the flowers in. You need to um, use a completely different technique. So I have a I have a question. I'm an I have animal biology background, so sorry if it's kind of silly, but um, in what ways do the organisms um, are synergistic with the plants? Like, do they get nutrients or um, for growth? Like, how are they benefiting from having a host? How are the plants benefiting? So in the case of the mycorrhizal symbiosis, that's the mutualistic interaction. Um, so the, the amazing thing about fungi is they have a very large, this, the fungal hyphae have a very large surface area that's in contact with soil. They're very long and very thin. And what we don't realize is that our soil is very extensively colonized by fungal mycelium. And, and these fungi are really good at absorbing nutrients, particularly things like phosphorus and nitrogen that might be limiting in soils for plants. And they absorb way more than they need and they deliver this directly to their plant host. So these, this is one probably of the best characterized ways in which plants benefit from having access to our buscular mycorrhizal fungi is they have an improved access to nutrients. There's some evidence that um, they have improved access to water, although I don't think there's any studies directly showing a transfer of water from the fungus to the plant roots. Um, but there's also something about this association between the fungus and the plant that you know, can definitely show that these plants are more resistant to insect pests to uh, pathogens, fungal pathogens, for example. We don't entirely understand why. It can be difficult to kind of dissect why that might be. On the one hand, it could just be that healthier plants are inherently more resistant to disease. But it seems to be there's something more to it than just that. Um, mycorrhizal plants are more resistant to abiotic and biotic stresses. So they're more resistant to things like drought, salinity, pollution, heavy metals, that kind of thing. They're just generally um, happier, healthier plants. What's really cool is uh, this is maybe less clear for a buscular mycorrhizal symbiosis, but ectomycorrhizal symbiosis, which is a different group of fungi, that's the term, the wood wide web. This is this idea that these, these fungi um, connect multiple hosts at the same time and might be a source of transfer of carbon from you know, larger trees to younger seedlings that are becoming established. One of the reasons I got into the uh, field of arbuscular mycorrhizal symbiosis was a paper that came out many years ago now that just blew my mind, where they showed that you could have a couple of, you could have a group of plants and you could expose one group of plants to aphids. Now aphids are like the mosquitoes of the plant world, right? They land on, an, uh, on a plant and they pierce in and they, they, they suck out the, the sap from the plant um, and in doing so they transmit viruses actually. The feeding damage from aphids is usually quite limited. Where they impart serious damage is they transfer a lot of viral disease to plants. So they're a big problem to plants. But the, what this study showed is that if you can take aphids and put them on one set of plants, 
um, that are connected to another set of plants by mycorrhizal fungi or vascular mycorrhizal fungi, the second set of plants, even though it has no air space contact with the first set, even though they have not themselves been exposed to aphids, start to mount a defense response that's consistent with repelling in insects such as aphid. And the researchers show that if you break that fungal connection between those two groups of the plants, you lose that defense response. So somehow there is some kind of signal that is being relayed between the two groups of plants where the first plant, if you will, I'm saying this in quotations, is telling in quotations, the second set, hey, you know, there's an insect coming here, beware, mount your defense. And these researchers were very careful to show that this wasn't by the production of so-called volatile organic compounds. We know plants do that. They communicate by air, they release gases, if you will, that um, will also transmit this information to neighboring plants. But they, they were able to eliminate that as well by keeping the plants separate in terms of airspace. So I thought that was really cool, but at the same time, it makes sense because it comes back, like I said, these are obligate biotrophs. This fungus will not survive without a plant host. So it needs, in a sense, to protect, its survival is linked with that of its host. And so if it can help protect a host, it, you know, it's to the fungus's benefit. And the idea is that, you know, one plant is relaying a signal to a second plant. I like to think of it more as it's the fungus is eavesdropping on what's going on with plant group over A and, and realizes, you know, it's sensing something, a phytohormone response, some kind of response, and it's relaying that information to the second plant as a way of protecting its investment. Wow, that is so interesting. Um when you just explain that like what what plants um are able to have that symbiosis with the fungi can it be any plant or just a specific kind or species most plants so if you look outside your window right now about seven or eight of the plants that you see out of ten are going to be participating in one of the mycorrhizal symbioses so about seven out of ten plants can participate in the arbuscular mycorrhizal symbiosis um, a smaller percentage of plants participate in the ectomycorrhizal symbiosis. These are primarily the so-called woody plants, things like pine and poplar. The arbuscular mycorrhizal symbiosis, coming back to Elaine's question earlier about what is symbiosis and why is it so important, this is one of the most ancient symbioses that we are aware of in terms of plant and microbes. We have fossils that date back more than 400 million years of roots showing these arbuscules. These are fungal structures within roots that are associated with arbuscular mycorrhizal fungi. So we have fossil evidence that this symbiosis has taken place at least 400 million years. And to give you a context, you know, plants are only thought to have um, evolved on land maybe 470 million years ago. And our thinking is that it was a green algal ancestor that gave rise to all of land plants that we see today. And there's a lot of, um, there's a hypothesis that the reason this green algal ancestor was able to colonize land was because of this symbiosis with fungi. The fungi were already on land. They already knew how to access the nutrients that were available in the soil. If you think about um, an, 
algal ancestor which would have had no or very primitive roots available to it. It would not have been well evolved to absorb the nutrients it needs from soil necessarily. And so the thinking is that in forming this symbiosis all those years ago, this was absolutely key and important to allowing this ancestor to gain access and to thrive in a land environment. And again, this is so important. The fact that, that still a vast majority of land plants today engage in the symbiosis underscores the importance of it. And there's no aquatic plants that actually have a mycorrhizal... Ah, lovely question. <laughs> Which I do not have a lovely answer. I think there are... I would be astounded if there were not aquatic plants that engage in a similar symbiosis. I don't think it would necessarily be with glomeromycetes, which are the Arbusca, the mycorrhizal fungi. I'm not aware of any papers that have shown that, um, that they are aquatic or survive in an aquatic environment, but I don't know how many people have actually looked, to be honest. And I would find it surprising if there was no counterpart interesting <laughs> there you go you need another research direction elaine <laughs> so lately yeah you've been interviewed uh, quite a bit about a third project that you started and that's about edible vaccines and also to try and make plants make proteins in order to be able to use those uh, in vaccines as well so do you want to just briefly take us through how this came about. Right, well, how this came about. So the thing is, when COVID hit, um, you know, I think all the scientists that I know, pretty much everybody was trying to figure out, is, is there a way in which I can kind of tap into my knowledge and contribute somehow to the fight against this pandemic? And as a plant biologist, you know, that's the answer didn't exactly leap out at me as to how I can contribute in a meaningful way to the pandemic. But one thing I, I, gotten very good at is making microbial proteins in plants. And this is in the course of my study of the phytoplasma and the Arbusca the mycorrhizal fungi. I would produce my effector proteins in a plant called Nicotiana benthamiana, which is a relative of tobacco. And I got to be fairly adept at doing this. And so when I thought about it, it seemed to make a lot of sense. Okay, if I could do this with bacterial proteins, if I could do this with fungal proteins, why not do it with viral proteins? And I'm certainly not the first to have this idea. You know, about 15 years ago, there was a lot of movement towards making edible vaccines, which is simply by expressing viral antigen, or not necessarily viral antigen, it could be bacterial, bacterial antigen, but to be producing viral antigen in a plant that is then ingested, um, and then that antigen can be taken up by your mucosal immune system and confer immunity or protection to you as a way of, you know, um, being a vaccine, basically. And so I thought it would be interesting and hopefully helpful to tap into the skills that I developed at the John Innes Center and um, basically transforming plants to make viral antigen, either in the context of an edible vaccine that you would then consume, and so the research here, we're focusing a lot on spinach and collard greens and lettuce seem to be doing a good job at producing our proteins, uh, but also in making an intranasal vaccine. So something that you would inhale, again, with the idea of stimulating mucosal immune system. And this would be using my favorite plant, which is Nicotiana benthamiana. So these are kind of two projects that we have ongoing in the lab. And 
it's a really cool idea that um, we use a bacteria called Agrobacterium tumefaciens. It's a gram-negative pathogen of plants, you know, and what its thing is in nature is to go and find a plant that has a little bit of a wound. It gets in there and it sets up home. It injects the plant with its own genes that make the plant grow a tumor and the tumor produces food, if you will, for the bacteria. Scientists many years ago realized we could use this as a means of genetically modifying organisms. And that's basically all I'm doing is I'm taking agrobacterium, I'm putting my genes of interest, which are these viral antigenic um, genes that encode viral antigen, putting it into this bacteria, and then I'm basically injecting, if you will, the bacteria into Nicotiana. And then the bacteria is the one that's doing the work. They infect the plant cells with the genes of interest, and they kind of turn the plants into factories that produce this, this viral antigen. And what is the yield like? You know, do they produce, oh. mass produce these proteins, or is it just no, a little bit? Great. <laughs> it's not great. If you've purified protein from things like E. coli, which I have done quite a bit of, or if from mammalian cell lines, it's, um, you're not going to be happy with plants. Plants are more difficult. They're more challenging. They don't produce as high a yield. They also have um, secondary metabolites, plant cell walls. They have things that are a little bit more difficult that you need to purify your protein of interest from. So in terms of yield, I mean, the highest yield of the best performing expression system that I've seen is about three grams of GFP in a kilogram of plant tissue. So we're not talking massive amounts and you'll be lucky if your protein produces that much. For so whatever reason, GFP expresses beautifully well in plants. No idea why. So in this case, you know, what would be the advantage of uh, mass producing proteins in plants instead of... Uh, bioreactors in E. coli because there's there's a huge difference here and there might be circumstances where you this is what you want to do and not actually use a prokaryotic cell in order to produce a protein so i know so, it's not a new idea producing proteins in plants um but the so, yield has always been a problem right yeah um, it's, you know, it's not an advantage. I don't think it's necessarily a problem, though. It's certainly not a problem that you can't overcome. In terms of your first question, the advantage of plants as a eukaryote over something like E. coli, which is a prokaryote, is that plants will glycosylate your protein. And for something like the spike protein of SARS-CoV-2, glycosylation is really important. So you don't want to be making this kind of thing in something like E. coli. Um, so that's a definite advantage that plants have. Plants are also typically easier to scale up and more affordable, which is less of an issue in countries like Canada and most of Europe, um, but is more of an issue in kind of third world countries where they may not have um, easy access to the, the, the infrastructure that's necessary to mass produce conventional vaccines. So plant-based vaccines can be uh, an advantage because they're cheaper to develop, they're cheaper to scale up, they're cheaper to re research as well. They're less, much less likely to be contaminated with a human pathogen. You know, you have to be really careful with conventional vaccines. You don't have to be as careful with plant-based vaccines in that respect because, you know, a human pathogen is not going to infect your plants. It's just not, the plants are not a host for these things. 
Uh, you also need less access to a cold, what we call the cold chain storage. So conventional vaccines should be refrigerated at all times until they're injected into you. That's less of a demand in terms of edible or plant-based vaccines. Which has always been a problem, especially in countries that don't have a cold chain that's very functional. Some of the vaccines that are being developed for COVID at the moment, some of them need to be kept at minus 70. So if we were actually trying to mass produce this and trying to send it over for the planet to be able to inject these vaccines, the logistics of it would be really hard. The other advantage of the vaccines that I'm working on is because they're intranasal or they're edible, you inhale them or you eat them. And these are taken up and stimulate your mucosal immune system. And that is relevant to airborne pathogens such as SARS-CoV-2 because you inhale it. And the site of colonization, the site of infection is your lungs, which is a mucosal system. And so there's a lot of emphasis on developing conventional vaccines, which are injectable, which um, can trigger a stronger immune response in your blood. But there's definitely, interest and space for a complementary approach, which is trying to stimulate your mucosal system. And it's possible that might have a more effective immune response in your lungs when you're first exposed to something like SARS-CoV-2. So just to end this wonderful conversation with you, Alison, as I was going through your website, which is wonderful, and saw that this particular project or program that you were supporting caught my attention. So this Ayatana Artists Research Program, I don't know if you would like to explain to us a little bit what this is about and how you got into supporting this program. So I have um, a very strong interest in art and spirituality that's kind of always been there and maybe isn't something most people are aware of as a scientist, not an area that you really explore in your profession. Um, But I was actually contacted by uh, Alexis who runs the Ayantana Artist Program. And she basically what she does is she invites artists from around the world. And, you know, I've hosted people from New Zealand and Australia, a lot of Americans, different parts of Canada. So Europe, very much an international program, um, maybe half a dozen people at a time. And what they love is the intersect between science and art. And this is an area that's really not well explored most of the time. And I just love interacting with these artists because they think so differently from scientists. One of my favorite parts when I first get to meet them is each one of them tells me about why they're there and what their art is, what their medium is, what is it that they love. And it's just, I love their thinking and uh, it's just fascinating anyways. um, And so what they wanna do is interact with scientists. Um, It depends on the theme. So sometimes they're interested in mycology. And so they've contacted me because I study mycorrhizal fungi and then they'll come and they'll look at the plants and they'll look at the greenhouse, they'll look at our colonized roots and fungal spores. Uh, sometimes they're interested in microscopy, you know, they, they like microscopes and they look at very small things. So it depends on the theme in question, or I think she had one on, on nature in general or biology. Um, so there might be slightly different themes each time, but basically they come and visit my lab in a pre-COVID world. This time we did it all online. The most recent one was all online, but typically they would come, they would tour my lab, they would see the microscopes, the greenhouse, the growth chambers. They would ask a whole bunch of questions and 
in conversations with them as well, they kind of steer my thinking in a different direction. You know, they might ask something that I haven't thought of before. They see things slightly differently. And I really enjoy that, that exchange between myself and them. And I would encourage anybody who wants to look into this a little bit more. I have a little bit of a, a blurb about what they do. And I think a link to their website on my website, which is plantsymbiosis.org. So people can go and check that out there. I love that. I find it fascinating to blend different worlds together and see, as you said, the different optics that all these different groups have. I'm so happy that people can actually go and see your wonderful website at plantsymbiosis.org so that they can refer to this particular program if they're interested in participating. So it's been wonderful, Alison, to speak to you. You've been really generous with your, with your time. And, you know, obviously you're a really great communicator. So um, thank you very much for this. I appreciate it. Thank you. Listen to more episodes of Beyond the Test Tube every 15th of every month, either on Google Play or Apple Podcasts, or visit our website on Simplecast Beyond the Test Tube.